Take that Bible and look over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and want to begin this section here. It's a new section of Scripture for us. But let me read just those opening verses there of James chapter 4. The text is amazing, stunning, even this morning. And uh, you've seen this text if you've been in Christ for any amount of time, and we'll exposit from it. We'll take a week, obviously, at Easter, then we'll jump right back on the 27th. Um, but look at the text with me, and I'll pick it up at 4.4, striking language. James says there in 4.4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace, therefore it says God is opposed to the proud and then gives grace to the humble. And if you look at verse 7 there, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. There's ten imperatives in the language that come in verses 7 through 10. So I've titled the message on the opening section of James, Worldliness, and then we'll look at both its cause and its cure. One writer of the book of James said this, he said that the letter of James ought to be titled, The in-your-face epistle. I think it's well said. I mean, James, if you will, is in our face. He's tender, but he's right at us, and he definitely will get in our face this morning. Now, this message on worldliness is just much needed. It is much needed for our community at large. And you say, well, Scott, what, what do you mean by that? I just, I just think we're at ease. And I'm not talking about the unbelievers. I'm talking about people who are claiming Christ, but at ease. And this is a powerful word. And I don't know if, frankly, it's on my heart to say you're at ease, but the community in which... We live. I mean, I'm kind of new here, right? And I remember sometimes when I travel, they would wonder if anybody could be a Christian in California, and I'm not quite sure what that meant. But where I grew up and the church I grew up at, it loved the Word and it loved Christ, and it modeled those things for me as a little boy. And it's all I grew up, and I only grew up with people loving Christ. But my fear here is, is you could grow up in something and all the while you're claiming Christ, you're worldly. And I don't know if I so much mean that towards you, so understand I don't feel like I'm I'm preaching this because our flock is worldly. But I would say to you, if the shoe fits, you've got to wear it and hear it, right? So we're not going to avoid this passage. It is a hard-hitting passage, There's just no way around it. And one of the beauties of exposition is you don't avoid this one. You can't. You have to deal with it. 
I mean, how would this message sound in a seeker-sensitive church? Worldliness, its cause and its cure. Probably wouldn't hear it. But amazingly, that though this is a hard-hitting message, this text in James 4 is filled with hope. And I got to get to the hope this morning, or I think I would be, it'd be incomplete if I just took a couple verses, which I could have. But Kent Hughes said this in his book, Set Apart. He said that a Christian college president confided into a Christian Christianity Today editor, that's a magazine, that the most perplexing puzzle he and his staff were facing regarding the present student body was the student leaders, he said, were outspoken in their Christian commitment and yet living with a boyfriend or girlfriend and not seeing a disconnect. That's what I'm talking about. Outspoken, but living with a boyfriend or girlfriend and in no way seeing a disconnect. Barna Research listed the following as some of the most discouraging findings in the last 15 years. Barna said, quote, born-again adults are more likely to experience a divorce than non-again adults. How about that? He said that the percentage are, for those who claim to be born again, 27%. And those who have no affiliation with the Lord, the divorce rate was 24%. Fascinating, isn't it? If you've come from a divorce background, I don't mean to be harsh. It might not be you. It could be a partner that left you. And I understand that. Your, Your spouse left you. But nevertheless, that is one of the great evangelical sins of the day. Barna went on to say that it was noted that a minority, catch that word, of born-again adults, 44%, and born-again teenagers, 9%, are certain of the existence of an absolute moral truth. Wow. That means over half the people claiming to be in Christ, don't believe in an absolute moral truth. And over 90% of teenagers don't think there's an absolute moral truth. Hughes went on to say all of this, together the ignorance, the spiritual anarchy, the growing acceptance of relativism among Christians, the divorce rates that exceed the secular culture, the increase of worldliness in the church despite growing attendance and Bible reading suggests that the church is becoming indistinct from the world, worldly. He went on to say, who can deny that materialism grips the church, that evangelicals watch sensuality and violence like everyone else, that pornography and sexual laxity and divorce are on the wise, and that we, like Lot, could find that Sodom has been born anew in our homes. Hughes said, God help us if while we are decrying sin, we are sprinting headlong after it. He said a worldly church cannot and will not reach the world. Church must be distinct from the world to reach the world. And the only hope for us and the lost world is a holy church. End of quote. So true. I mean, just a little footnote. I mean, James is going to address this. One of the things about the liberal denominations is you don't have to worry about them too much because nobody's in them. 
And you don't have to worry about the preaching too much because there's no preaching that takes place in those churches. So James is going to address this very issue. So look at James chapter 4, and you can see there on your notes, we're coming to the eighth feature. He keeps testing us, does he not, in our faith. And he basically says, if your faith is real, you're going to respond to trials. If your faith is tested, it's going to show in its reaction to temptation, its reception to the word of God, its reaction to partiality, its relationship to works, its relationship to our words, if you will, and then we just finished our in relation to wisdom. And now we come, and he's really saying, test yourself, because your faith is tested in our relationship to the world. And that section, as it says there on your notes, is in chapter 4, 4 through 10, okay? And this is one of the strongest calls to repentance in the New Testament, And if I charted the course for you from where we were to where we're going, James' concern is not so much our conflict with one another, but our conflict with God by becoming friends of the world. Now, what he does here, as you can see there on your notes, he's going to expose the deadly danger of worldliness in 4, 4 through 6. Then he's going to develop a gracious cure to overcome the virus. And that's how I take it. And the cure is going to be those 10 imperatives in verses 7 through 10. So to me, the the text makes sense. He exposes the danger, the deadly danger of worldliness, and then he develops the gracious cure. Let's just dive right into the text. Look here at the beginning at the deadly danger of worldliness. And he basically says it's abhorrent to God for two reasons. And the first reason is, is that it severs our covenant relationship with God. It severs our covenant relationship with God. Look at the text again in 4.4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I mean... Grace Church of the Valley, that is just a shocking statement, is it not? It, I mean, you adulterous people, I mean, that is just strong. You can't get any stronger than that. It's almost like James went into prophet mode right there, right? You think of those prophets who were declaring the truth of Scripture in the Old Testament. And the reason I think it's shocking, again, if you look at that designation, you can see it there, you adulterous people, what's absent there? And what's absent in this section, which is interesting, is he's already called his readers brothers many times, but not this time. In fact, go back. Remember at chapter 1-2, just look back a page or two. Remember he says in 1-2, count it all joy. He says, my brothers, right? Look over to chapter 2 and verse 1. My brothers, he says there, show no partiality. Glance down at 2.14. What good is it in, my, in 14? My brothers, if someone says he has faith. Look over at chapter 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers. My brothers. Glance down at chapter 3, verse 10. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers. So he uses that refrain, but he also uses another one. He uses this one called my beloved brothers. Remember that? Look over at 116. Remember there at the end of that section in 116, do not be deceived. 
my beloved brothers. He says, look in verse 19, 119, know this, my beloved brothers. And he uses it again in chapter 2, 5. And now all of a sudden it catches you, does it not? You adulterous people. It catches our attention. Now, if you look down in the scripture again at 4.4, interestingly, and I'll make sense of it, he says, you adulterous people. But in the Greek language, that word there, adulterous, you can see the ESV has kind of um, put it in a sentence and are, are putting what they would call the interpretation to it. But actually, in the Greek language, it's the word adulteresses, okay? You adulteresses, it's feminine. And, and some translations try to overcome that and say adulterers and adulteresses and so forth, adulteresses, if you will. Um, it's a feminine word. But, but the reason that you can see it here, you adulterous people, is if you read it literally, you would catch it as literal adulteresses, which means that you would be saying, do you think this? that James is only addressing the women. And of course, we would say, no, he's not just addressing the women. This book was written probably in about 44 AD. And when James said that, I think the people knew exactly what he was saying. The Jewish audience would immediately recognize exactly what James meant. That term for adultery in the Old Testament, do you remember? Spoke of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness to God. And it was used as a metaphor because in the Old Testament language, God joined himself to Israel by establishing a covenant with them. And so when you look back in the Old Testament, God is pictured as the husband and Israel was often depicted as the unfaithful wife. And sadly, throughout Scripture, Israel committed what we would call spiritual adultery. In fact, the prophet Isaiah said in 54, 5, your maker, speaking to Israel, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And so throughout that Old Testament, our Lord is portrayed as the husband and Israel as the wife. And listen, Grace Church, when that relationship is threatened by idolatry, it is likened in the Scripture to committing spiritual adultery or spiritual idolatry, okay? In fact, I want you to see this. It's an amazing graphic text. Look over at Ezekiel 16 just for a minute. Let me show your eyes some of these texts, and we'll just touch on them. In fact, the, the title that I have, even the superscription in my Bible in the Old Testament and the ESV, the one I'm holding, says the Lord's faithless bride. Not faithful bride, but faithless bride. Look at this text, very graphic, um, but you'll understand what James is talking about. In 16.1 of Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are in the land of the Canaanites. 
Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. He's talking about God's grace coming to this nation. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. You were not washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. You could see, now watch this. And when I passed by, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you, in your blood, live. And I said to you, in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again, I saw and behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garments over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord. And you became mine. All of God's grace to the nation of Israel, right? Verse 9, then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil and I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and chain on your neck. In other words, he's speaking metaphorically that I just kept blessing you. And blessed you in my grace to pull you from the mire and to make a covenant with you. Verse 12, I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and broidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord your God. But you, so sad, trusted in your beauty. You played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, idolatry, and put on them and played the whore the like that has never been, nor shall ever be. I mean, it's just sad. He blessed him and blessed him, and they left him. He made a covenant with them, and then they severed that covenant. You could go on, look at verse 26, same chapter. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Verse 28, you played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. 29, you multiplied your whoring and and also with the trading land of Chaldea and even with this you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord your God, because you did all these things. Uh, he, He says, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. Look at verse 32. He just calls him that here. Adulterous, what? Wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Verse 35. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Look over at verse 38. He said here that I will judge you as a woman who commit adultery or women who commit adultery and shed blood and are judged and bring you upon the blood of wrath and jealousy. Wow, so well said. Israel's covenant relationship with God, listen, 
demanded exclusive loyalty, exclusive devotion. And when that relationship is stained by unfaithfulness, it is appropriately called spiritual adultery. It is an affair with the world. This is what the Scripture says. Look over just one more at Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah. Back up a little bit. Jeremiah, and I'm just touching on these. There's so more, but you understand this is what Israel did. And now James in the New Testament saying, is the church doing this? But in Jeremiah chapter 3, in verse 6, again, graphic words where faithless Israel is called to repentance. Jeremiah 3, 6, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every hill and under every green tree and played the whore. In other words, they went after the false gods. Verse 7, and I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw all for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel. I had sent her away with a decree of divorce Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went to and played the whore. And because she took the whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. In other words, worshiping false gods. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. And if you go down to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, this is so clear. Surely The prophet said, the Lord speaking, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. I think it's understandable what James is talking about. You go back and you begin to follow this in Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23, Jeremiah chapter 3. And of course, the imagery reaches its zenith in Hosea where the Lord commanded Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. And so the prophet's marriage to the harlot mirrored the unfaithfulness of Israel to the Lord because in Hosea 2.5, Israel played the harlot. Now go back to the book of James. I mean, it's just so strong, isn't it? And I just, he just says, you adulterous people. Now he's writing to these people. In other words, you've turned from your vows. Okay? You've committed, he says to them, spiritual adultery. Now again, as you cross over from Old Testament to the New Testament, Jesus said of the Israelites in his day, he said this in Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous nation craves a sign. He called them an adulterous nation. Israel, again, was the wife of the Lord and her idolatries and departure from that covenant was seen as adultery. Of course, we all know, do we not, in the New Testament, the church is called the bride of what? Christ. We're his bride. Listen, if he redeemed you, if he saved you, 
You can't fall into love with the world. I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 11.2 when Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And so what James does is he extends this metaphor from the church as a whole, it could be that, to the individual believer. And by their, your, if I could say it, friendship with the world, they were committing spiritual adultery. And if I could use this language, God is pictured, it's fair, as a jealous lover who longs for the undivided attention to be given towards him. So the feminine ending, you understand, in James 4.4 is appropriate in the view of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. I've done hundreds of weddings. Hundreds of them. And I usually, in so many words, say something like this to the groom. Think about this vow at your wedding. I, the man, says, I take you, okay, to the wife, to be my lawfully wedded wife. I receive you as a gift from God, and they repeat after me, that together we may be one in love and in our ministry for Jesus Christ. I pledge to you my protection, my deepest love, my unselfish devotion, my most tender care, And as Christ is to his body, the church, so I will be to you a faithful and sacrificial husband. I will honor you and respect you and cherish you. And I will keep this bond of marriage holy and unbroken. And I pledge to you my life till death do us, what? Part. A man would say that to his wife. And so I would just say, what husband, facetiously, would allow his wife to have an affair with another man? And what woman would allow her husband to be involved with another woman? And James is liking it here, and he says, by seeking friendship with the world, you have committed spiritual adultery against God. Now now look what he says. Go back to the text again. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? And he puts it in a rhetorical question. It's a strong rebuke, and the question implies an answer, yes, it is. Yes, you you would say, friendship with the world is enmity towards God. What is that, though? Well, Well, of course, words mean something. Do you not know that friendship, what is it? Well, I think when I say friend and you say friend, or if I say friendship, you would think, well, I'm friends with so, we have a friendship together. Ah, it's more, way more than that. This is the Greek word phileo. It's, it's a very, very intimate word. Phileo, of course, is built off the word group for love. But it's a, it's a term of intimacy, and it literally means to love. And it means to have an affection for. It's the word that, it, that means to kiss. 
And so it's not a shallow understanding. And to be a friend in the Hellenistic world involved the sharing of all things. But here, that friendship, as you can see, is with the world. And whoever becomes friends with the world, it says there, is at enmity with God. I mean, you know that Jesus said this. I just spoke to our high school students on Wednesday night with this. When Jesus said no one can serve two, what? Masters. He, re, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. But you can't serve two masters, right? Now, you'll note the object of this affection. Look again at 4.4. He says, do you not know friendship with, uh, here's the object, the world. The world. What is the world? Well, we talked about that in First John. There's three different uses in the New Testament for it, right? Sometimes the world just means creation. God made the world. Sometimes the world, secondly, speaks of humanity. For God so loved the world. He's not talking about the physical creation. He's talking about humanity altogether. But then sometimes that word for world, which is our meaning here, is speaking of the world system. That system which is hostile to God. That world that is a spiritual system of ideal and the, in the ideologies and philosophies that are towards evil. In fact, look, look what James already warned us, didn't he? In one twenty-seven, look back there. He uses the word there in one twenty-seven. Remember when he said, "Religion is pure and undefiled before God and the Father." Is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from what the world? So these people were falling in love with the world. They're not just brushing shoulders with the world. They're falling in love with it. And you and I both know that First John says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, what? Is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here's the best definition, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it comes to us from the world. Now, what is worldliness then? What would you say? I mean, that's probably the, we used to say the $64,000 question. What do you think worldliness is? I suppose depending on where you grew up. Some of you might have a little different view than others. Some of you grew up in a more fundamentalist Arian, and you, we might say, well, worldliness is drinking. Worldliness is dancing. Worldliness is movies. Worldliness is, and we'd say a lot of stuff. Now, I guarantee you that, and I'm probably thinking how I'm thinking, most of you don't think you're worldly. Because you're probably mixing and matching with someone else who's worse than you. And you're probably sitting in here thinking, I don't really think I'm worldly. So what is worldly? Well, let me just stay in the context. You know what worldliness is? Worldliness in James is partiality. It's when you're a receiver of people by the face. Worldliness in James is when you can't control the little red rebel in your mouth. That's worldliness. 
Worldliness is when you're operated and motivated, not by wisdom that comes from above, but the wisdom that comes from below that's motivated by selfish ambition and jealousy. Worldliness, certainly in the immediate context, is this, is when your passions rule you. Now begin to identify that. Now begin to say that because I just tend to think we think most of us aren't. Worldliness could be just not responding appropriately in a trial. I, you know, I've told you. Counseling, many people I know, where the train of the Christian life was on the groove and all it took was one trial and the train jumped the groove and they're no longer in the groove. And they've lived 10, 15, 20, 25 years in anger. Anger at God. That, and, and where instead of coming underneath them, you become angry with them. So listen, I think worldliness is anything when we love the world system more than we love God. In fact, look what he said, though, in 4.4. He said, do you not know that friendship with the world, look what he says, is enmity with God. In other words, one cannot embrace both God and the world at the same time. So look what he says in 4.4. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know that word wishes there to be a friend of the world? You could underline that. Pretty significant statement when it says whoever wishes to be that friend. Wishes is the Greek word bulathe. And it's not talking about a reluctant decision. But an outright choice to join the world. And what James is saying here is neutrality with God is impossible. Now, a bigger question at large for us theologically, is this person a believer? I mean, you have to ask that question. I mean, if, if and, I, and I want to equip you, so I'm not trying to point the finger at you, but if the shoe fits, wear it. But is, is this person a believer? Now, you, you'll note the text. Look at it again. Stick your eyes back there. You make yourself, at the end of verse 4, an enemy of God. And when I read that text there in other places in the New Testament, it was used of unbelievers. It's hard to say that a believer can be called an enemy of God. I'm thinking of Romans 5.10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And before we came to Christ, we were his enemy. And before we came to Christ, we were hostile in mind. Romans 8.7 says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not submit to God's law. It cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit dwells in you. So to love the world is to become his enemy. And John the Apostle said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, what? Is not in him. Now, it's interesting in 1 John that when it says the love of the Father is not in him, the present tense there describes someone who continually makes the world the object of his or her love. And when that's the continual pursuit, then the love of the Father is not in him. But, okay, so it may be speaking to an unbeliever who's in the flock, 
who's partaking of communion, who's around the one another's in the word, but they have a greater affection for the things of the world. It could be that, but it also may be true that AD children can live BC lives, right? See, it's easy to say it's the unbeliever, but what if it's me? What if it's you? And maybe we just ought to search our heart a little bit because we love them and say, Lord, what do you see in my life? When you see that phrase there, do you see that? Makes himself an enemy of God. I can't help but think that James is probably drawing a distinction with Abraham. Look back in James 2.23, just one page. Remember when it says in 2.23, the scripture was fulfilled, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And so, beloved, he obeyed God. He was a friend of God. So, number one, the deadly danger of worldliness is it, it's abhorrent to God because it severs our covenant relationship with him, and we don't want to commit spiritual adultery. But secondly, it provokes the jealousy of God. It provokes the jealousy of God. Look at verse 5, interesting text. Do you not, or he says, do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James says, do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? We would likely say, no, it does speak to a purpose. However, James says, by your lifestyle, you might say yes. Now, as we come to verse five, two questions are foremost. What scripture is James referring to? Look at it again. Do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit, so forth? What scripture is that? Well, let me just say, we're just not sure what scripture that is. There's no uh, scripture, either New Testament or certainly the Old Testament, that has that statement in verse 5 verbatim, okay? Some say that that scripture there in verse 5 that he's speaking about goes back to verse 6. Look at 4, 6. Therefore, it says, and this statement is right out of Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's not likely that he's referring to that theme because he, he skips down two verses. I think it's best to think that when he's referring to the scripture, He's referring to the theme found in verse 5 regarding God's jealousy, specifically in many, many Old Testament passages. I'll look at that with you. Then there's a second question to ask. Look again at verse 5 when it says, He yearns jealously, jealously over the Spirit. What is the meaning of the Spirit? What is the meaning of the Spirit? It's probably one of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament. Is that spirit there, small letter S, and it's referring to your human spirit, or is it capital S, referring to the Holy Spirit? Now, if you're holding an NIV, the NIV favors the the previous idea where it's speaking of a human spirit, And, and here's how the NIV would read. Do you think that the spirit, lowercase, he caused to dwell in us yearns envi- enviously is the thought. And if you put it in a small s, the interpretation has James saying the human spirit is being tempted towards envy, okay? Okay, the, K- the King James does the same thing. 
Here's what the King James says. The Spirit, lowercase s, that dwelleth in us, lusteth, if you will, to envy. And it puts it on a human spirit, and that human spirit is moving us towards envy, and that's the problem with our worldliness. But I believe, Grace Church, the reference is to the Holy Spirit with a capital S. And I think what James is saying here, you can't be over dogmatic, but that the Spirit, Holy Spirit, given to us at salvation, yearns earnestly for total devotion to Him. In other words, you've got the Holy Spirit who dwells in you earnestly, jealously desiring you to obey God. In fact, look at the the text again in verse 5. When the scripture says, he yearns jealously. Stop there just for a second. Who is the he? I believe it's God. And God is yearning. He is? Yeah, that's what the text says. What, what is yearning? We, we don't use that word. It's just intense longing. It speaks of a, of a desire. It, it's the ideal of to crave. Okay? But nine times in the New Testament, that word is used in a very positive sense. It's a virtuous desire, a virtuous longing. And when the Bible uses it of God, it is not the jealousy of a carnal desire, but a loving concern for his people. Now, that's yearning, but look at, look at else in verse 5. He yearns God. It says this, jealously. What is that? It's a strong affection so that here the spirit, if you will, given to us at conversion is yearning for total loyalty and devotion to him is the thought. The spirit, Holy Spirit, who sealed our redemption desires an undivided love. I like how the NASB said it, that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And you see that text in other scriptures, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. You remember that one in 1 Corinthians? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the spirit, God's spirit, dwells in you? In other words, at conversion, the spirit of God took up residence in our hearts. And so here, look at it again in five. He, God, yearns jealously over the Spirit. So you got one member with another member in the Trinity. And the Trinity there, the Spirit, is the one who's dwelling in us. And, and the reason I think this is consistent is that the Old Testament was never afraid to apply the word jealous to God's character. In other words, God's jealous. You said that could, he is? Yes. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy 32, 16, that they made him jealous with strange gods. Of course, in the book of Exodus in 20, he said, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any other likeness in heaven above or on earth beneath. You shall worship them or you shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. In other words, God loves us with such a jealousy that he cannot bear any other affection in the hearts of his people. Now, 
that, that's one of his attributes. You know that. In fact, we'll be speaking on that this summer at Summerfest. Mike Fabaris is going to be talking on God's jealousy. So is he a God of love? Yes. Is he a God of forgiveness? Yes. But he's also a jealous God. And here, the spirit who convicted us of our sin, sealed our redemption, is desiring, if you will, undivided love. And God is pictured here as a jealous lover who will have no rival. And God demands unreserved allegiance from his people. Is that you? Is that your heart? Did you just want to honor him? And you want him to have all of you and all of your family and all of your time, talents, and energies. That's what he wants. I like how Blanchard said it. He said, it is the jealousy of a divine lover, the one who loves you with an everlasting love, who was jealous for you the moment you first drew breath upon this earth, who was jealous for you when you were groping for the first hold on life, who was jealous for you when you first took your first conscience steps into sin. Jealous for you when you first heard his name. Jealous for you when you rejected him. Jealous for your salvation as he brought the gospel to you until finally he broke through in the power of the Holy Spirit and brought you to living faith. What is more, he is jealous for you now. Jealous for you in every temptation, in every trial. Jealous for you, he said, that you should be robbed by compromise, worldliness, prayerlessness, or even disobedience. Listen, our God's a jealous God, and, and he doesn't want us, we can't do it. You can't serve two masters. Either one the lo- love the one and hate the other, or hold to the one and despise the other. So here's why worldliness is so dangerous. Number one, it severs our covenant with God, and number two, it provokes the jealousy of God, who's desirous of our undivided attention. Now, you might be left saying, well, Scott, what resources do I have? How, how do I live this thing? I mean, it's just such a battle. I mean, Bunyan talked about Christian on his way to the celestial city, walking a tightrope, walking on this precipice, and on both sides of him was Vanity Fair. How do you do that? How do you live this thing called the Christian life? How do I not get sucked up into it? How do I not get sucked up in the business of it? How do I not get sucked up in the lust of it, in the worldliness of of it, in in the materialism of it? How does the grip not catch me? How does someone not allure me? How does something not allure me? How can I live this way as a wife or a mother or as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather? What resources do I have? Look at 4.6. You've got to see this. It's tremendous. But, verse 6, he gives more, what? Grace. There is, in your outline, the gracious cure to worldliness. Put it together. Is that though God demands your undivided affection, he also provides the necessary grace to be victorious over the world. In other words, look at that statement again. It says there, he gives more grace. In other words, he gives more than adequate to meet forth all the demands put forth by a jealous God. And so his demand for unreserved allegiance 
may seem impossible in this sin-polluted world, but he supplies the greater grace that we need every day to live. God's grace, God's favor, his unmerited favor is more than abundant to resist the world's allurement. Here is a gracious gift, grace in order to fulfill the wholehearted devotion that is sought. Augustine, I, I like it, what he said. He said, God gives what he demands. And what he demands is undivided loyalty and devotion to him. He will brook no rival. But he gives what he demands. And what he gives in this statement is grace. Now listen, that is not saving grace. We already, if you're a believer, possess that. This is greater grace is the thought. This is more grace. This is grace to live obediently as a believer in a sin-filled world. In other words, what James is saying is, listen, be encouraged. God is tirelessly on your side. God has abundant grace to meet your every need. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace or greater grace. So listen, he's a jealous God, but he's also gracious to supply all the grace you need to live a holy life in a sinful world. I like how Augustine again put it. He said, for daily grace, there is daily, he said, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. And for overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. He can give it to you. John referred to this. He said, did the apostle of his fullness, we have all received. Remember when John said, grace upon grace, John 1.16. Literally, grace flowing from grace. Grace, if you will, heaped upon grace. You Listen, we have no excuse, right? What he demands, he gives, and he'll supply it, which is interesting. The way to overcome worldliness isn't through your own effort, isn't through pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. There's going to be some commands he gives, but here he walks us into the cure, looking at his grace. One artist who submitted a painting of Niagara Falls for an exhibition neglected to give this picture of the Niagara Falls, a title. And the gallery came up with these words, just of his picture, more to follow. And I thought it was good because Niagara Falls spills over billions of gallons every year, has more than met the needs of those who are below. And it's a fit emblem of the flood of God's grace. There is always more to follow. I'm thinking the writer Hebrews said, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of what? grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Remember the great stanza of uh, Amazing Grace? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will what? Lead me home. It's all grace, is it not? Remember when Paul said, God said to Paul in the trial, my Grace is sufficient for you, right? 
for my power is perfected in your what? Weakness. He can supply it all. Listen, how do we live this life? Right here. Here's the cause, but here's the cure. And the cure is to stay your mind fixed on grace.